You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. scene in the movie Tombstone, which Doc Holliday tells rival gunslinger Johnny Ringo that he hates him because you remind me of me. Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday goes on to explain, there's just something about him, something about the eyes. No, I'm sure of it. I hate him. When we left off last time, Nathan Bedford Forrest had just taken a series of Union garrisons in western Tennessee, culminating with the slaughter at Fort Pillow. And William Tecumseh Sherman was absolutely fed up with his cavalry's series of failures to neutralize Forrest. Sherman was on a mission to capture Atlanta, and the last thing he wanted was Forrest messing with his supply lines. But there, there was more to it than that. Sherman had made destroying Forrest a top priority. Even when Forrest's activities weren't directly threatening Sherman's campaign, he wanted Forrest dealt with. He was the very devil, according to Sherman. And although Sherman had a begrudging respect for Forrest as a commander, Forrest's continuing ability to draw breath was viewed by Sherman as a personal insult. And it makes you wonder if maybe some of that was, like Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo, that Sherman saw a little bit of Sherman when he looked at Forrest. They were both fierce fighters who prioritized winning over anything else when they were strategizing. And both were quick to adapt tactics as the military situation dictated. They both had short tempers, and both had lost their fathers at a young age. And they both had very little use for politicians, despite being personally close to politics. And so, Sherman was compelled to assign yet another cavalry detachment, with the express mission of destroying Forrest. This time, General Samuel Sturgis got the job. Sturgis's orders from Sherman were to take command of that cavalry and whip Forrest. And Sherman also called on Admiral David Porter to block Sherman from crossing the Tennessee River. And Cadwallader Washburn was tasked with making sure Forrest stayed occupied and couldn't threaten Union supply lines in Georgia. Now, Forrest threatening Sherman's supply lines in Georgia might have been a, a good move for the rebels, but... As we mentioned last time, Jefferson Davis wanted Forrest to focus on protecting Mississippi and harassing Union forces in western Tennessee. And so that meant that Sturgis was going to need to go after him. But finding, engaging, and destroying Forrest's command wasn't an easy task. For one thing, Forrest tended to keep his men spread out in smaller groups, consolidating only occasionally in advance of battle. And Forrest also knew the region much better than the Union commanders, and he had a knack for avoiding engagements unless the odds were in his favor. Even with considerably more men than Forrest, Sturgis had a tough job ahead of him. 
His initial efforts began on April 30th when he set off with 6,000 Cavaliers. And very much to Sturgis's credit, he was able to locate Forrest less than 10 days later. And it was a prime opportunity. Forrest had only 250 men with him at the time, uh, but it was not to be. After feigning an eagerness to engage Sturgis, Forrest abruptly withdrew, then crossed and destroyed a bridge, leaving Sturgis on the other side, unable to follow. Sturgis reported to Sherman that he had no choice but to abandon the chase. Sturgis tried again a few weeks later, this time in command of what was essentially a small army of over 8,000 men, including more than 3,000 cavalry, marching south into Mississippi. Uh, By that point, Forrest was operating under, or maybe better described as in conjunction with, General Stephen Lee, uh, who took a much more hands-off approach to managing Forrest than Braxton Bragg had. The original plan was to hang back and try to uh, sniff out Sturgis's intentions. The rebel forces in the area were spread out, so Stephen Lee would work on getting the men concentrated, and then Forrest would bring up his cavalry to oppose Sturgis. But Forrest thought that he saw an opportunity due to the unfavorable terrain and poor roads Sturgis's men were traveling over. Now, this is how Forrest described it, quote, The country is densely wooded and the undergrowth so heavy that when we strike them, they will not know how few men we have, end quote. Sturgis uh, commanded a significantly larger force than what Forrest could bring to bear, but the heavy brush would help even the odds. Forrest's battle plan was pretty simple, but required precise execution. They'd start with a surprise attack against the Union cavalry that was riding out in front of Sturgis's army. Forrest anticipated that Sturgis would respond by bringing up his infantry to support the cavalry, at which point the rebels would launch an all-out assault against the infantry, which Forrest hoped would be uh, exhausted and disorganized from the march. With visibility low due to the dense undergrowth, if the plan went well, Sturgis and his men wouldn't recognize that they were facing off against a rebel contingent that was much smaller than their own. The two sides made contact on June 10th at a country intersection called Bryce's Crossroads, with rebel advance scouts bumping into Union cavalry. The rebel scouts got word of the meeting to Forrest as quickly as possible, and he ordered the men up front to engage the Yankees but just enough to convince the Union cavalry that they intended to fight and to fix them in place. At the same time, both sides raced to get the bulk of their respective fighting forces to the front. Buford and his cavaliers arrived for the rebels first, and they were promptly ordered to close in and deploy their artillery. The Union cavalry resisted the push, but they were already wearing down in the heat, and, uh, believing they were outnumbered, sent urgent requests to Sturgis to send up more infantry support, pronto. Now, Sturgis was already working on that. The men were on the way, marching hard at full speed. In fact, the pace was heavy enough that the infantry was losing men to the intense heat, just as Forrest had hoped. When the Union infantry started to show up at the front, forming a line of battle to the northwest of the crossroads, Forrest decided that it was time to increase the pressure. He had his men organized into a crescent with the open end facing the crossroads. They started with a movement against the Union left, which was followed soon after by advances up and down the line. The attackers were able to close the distance relatively unmolested, concealed by the thick underbrush. 
As the fighting began in earnest, the intensity ratcheted up in a hurry, close range with rifles, bayonets, pistols, and sabers. With the Union force suitably ruffled from the high-pressure attack on their not-quite-yet-formed lines, which followed immediately after an exhausting double-time march in the heat, Forrest ordered dual circling movements around either of Sturgis's flanks. Both flanking detachments were relatively small, but the confusion of battle and the limited visibility disguised their numbers, while also allowing them to move into position undetected. The intensity continued to rise, and Forrest was in full-fledged battle mode. Forrest biographer Brian Steele Wills reports one ordinary Johnny Reb recalling later, quote, he would cuss, then praise, then threaten to shoot us himself if we were so afraid the Yanks might hit us. And finally he said, I will lead you, end quote. The knockout punch came just as the Federals began adjusting to the dual threats coming from both flanks. Forrest ordered his principal artillery battery to charge straight up the road toward the Yankee center, unlimber, and open up with canister. Get as close as you can. Give him hell right yonder. Now, this was obviously a pretty risky move. Forrest was attacking from three different angles with a considerably smaller force, and having committed the bulk of his guns to blasting close range at the Union Center, if it didn't work, uh, he'd been in quite a predicament, most likely losing the artillery he had dispatched to the front and without any reserve force to repel a Union counterattack or cover a withdrawal. But it did work. Fairly certain that he was numerically outmatched, Sturgis ordered a withdrawal. Initially, the Union regiments pulled back sequentially, with each withdrawing group uh, leaving the next group's flank exposed. Uh, But it didn't stay organized for long, as the rebels responded to the withdrawal with a full-court press. Ultimately, it turned into a rout. Yankee soldiers rushed for the one open bridge over the creek obstructing their path of retreat. Mud slowed down the wagons, many of which had to be abandoned and Sturgis's retreat was harried on and off most of the way back to Memphis. A Union officer later remembered uh, Sturgis grumbling, For God's sake, if Mr. Forrest will let me alone, I will let him alone. End quote. All told, the rebels sustained 500 casualties at Bryce's Crossroads, uh, against a little more than 2,000 Union. Most of those were men who had been captured or gone missing during the frantic retreat. And the material losses were also significant. 16 cannon and a whopping 176 wagons, along with a massive haul of ordnance that was hugely valuable to the poorly supplied rebels. General Sherman was predictably apoplectic when he heard about Bryce's crossroads. If you recall, Sam Sturgis had been dispatched with a well-outfitted small army, the sole purpose of which was to take out Nathan Bedford Forrest. And not only did Sturgis not defeat Forrest's smaller force, he effectively strengthened Forrest by donating 14 artillery pieces and all the weapons and ammo Forrest's men could carry. Now, I think I I went into this this quote previously, but I'm going to quote Sherman again here, uh, both for emphasis and because it just perfectly encapsulates Sherman's frustration and his fixation on Forrest's destruction. Quoting Sherman, quote, Forrest is the very devil. I think he has got some of our troops under cower. Go out and follow Forrest to the death if it costs 10,000 lives and breaks the treasury. There will never be peace in Tennessee until Forrest is dead. And Sherman had been making a continuous, concentrated effort on seeing to it that Forrest did in fact end up dead. Thus far, 
that effort had proved unsuccessful. Around this time, Sherman was personally uh, pretty well occupied, pushing his way further and further into Georgia. And there were some people on the Confederate side, uh, notably including Georgia Governor Joseph Brown, who were thinking, hey, Sherman is threatening to take Atlanta, probably the Confederacy's second most important city. He's operating deep into the South, relying on precariously long supply lines. General Forrest has been pretty effective at that sort of thing. Maybe we should give him the opportunity to at least try to slow Sherman down. Who knows? Worth a shot, right? But the man responsible for making those sorts of decisions, Jefferson Davis, was against the idea. He wanted Forrest to stay put, defending Mississippi with the occasional raid into Tennessee. You could call the failure to use Forrest against Sherman poor coordination of resources, or it may be a symptom of Davis's perpetual stubbornness, or you might even question whether Davis was prioritizing his own home state over the war effort as a whole. Whatever it was, Davis didn't have many cards to play when it came to stopping Sherman, and the one card that might have affected the outcome stayed in his pocket, or stayed in Mississippi. It's worth noting that Mississippi hadn't been much of a hot spot, at least not recently. Sherman had been running the show for the Union Army in the region, and he had been looking east, glancing back over his shoulder occasionally to make sure Forrest wasn't sneaking up on him. Ironically, though, there was a Union invasion of Mississippi on the horizon. But that was primarily because Mississippi happened to be where General Nathan Forrest was, and Sherman remained hell-bent on Forrest's annihilation. So, the next batter up off the Union bench would be A.J. Smith, and he got basically the same assignment from Sherman as had Sam Sturgis, seek and destroy. Now, A.J. Smith saw a little bit more success than Sam Sturgis. He set out at the tail end of June 1864 with about 14,000 men, and once again, the objective of the mission was to take out Forrest. Uh, Forrest, at this point, was having some health issues, a skin problem that apparently had him in pretty rough shape, at least according to uh, some of the officers on his staff. A.J. Smith was approaching Tupelo from the east, raising enough havoc that Forrest and Stephen Lee, the overall Confederate commander in the area, felt compelled to stitch together a force large enough to challenge A.J. Smith. On July 14th, rebel cavalry began engaging the rear of Smith's force, and Smith turned to fight. There's some dispute as to exactly how the rebels decided to commit to fight at the Battle of Tupelo, uh, also called uh, Harrisburg, and whether Forrest objected to Stephen Lee's attack plan. But whether or not Forrest was in agreement with Lee or not, the bottom line was that the Southern cavalry performed very poorly. The artillery support got eaten up by the Union guns, and rebel advances were easily repelled, leaving Smith's Yankees in control of the contested ground. In his report, Forrest described the day's effort as an unprofitable slaughter with the loss of 1,300 casualties that the rebels could ill afford. But notwithstanding that clear victory, A.J. Smith was nonetheless forced to pull back toward Memphis. Union soldiers were having a tough time with illness and the oppressive Mississippi heat, and they were also running low on ammo. Uh, This time, Lee delegated the task of harassing the Union withdrawal to Forrest himself. A.J. Smith had a little more fight in him than Sturgis had shown after Bryce's crossroads, and he decided to push back uh, against the Southern cavalry that were nipping at his heels. Uh, The fighting was inconclusive, but there was at least one significant development. Forrest suffered another battle wound, uh, taking a bullet in the foot. 
It wasn't life-threatening, but Forrest did require medical treatment, and probably as a result of that, rumors began spreading that the ultimate objective of Smith's campaign had in fact been achieved. Forrest was dead. A.J. Smith even went so far as to report directly to his boss, that's right, William Tecumseh Sherman, that, you know, mission accomplished. Sherman was absolutely thrilled with the news, but he remained skeptical. He wrote to A.J. Smith, quote, Is Forrest surely dead? If so, tell General Maurer, uh, another Union officer um, on the campaign with Smith, I am pledged to him for his promotion, and if old Abe don't make good on my promise, then he will have my place, end quote. So did you catch that? Sherman is saying that he promised a promotion to a junior officer if the officer's campaign succeeded in bringing about Forrest's death. And if the bureaucracy hesitated to make good on that offer, Sherman was ready to go to bat with the president, or even give up his own commission. Now, obviously, there is an element of humor in Sherman's message. Uh, He's excited about the news. It lifted his spirits and put him in a lighthearted mood. Even so, like we said, getting rid of Forrest was a huge priority for Sherman. And not just strategically. It was important on a personal level. But... Of course, Nathan Bedford Forrest was not dead. He was uh, definitely encountering some health challenges, uh, including a bullet hole in his foot. But he remained among the living. And upon learning of the rumors of his death, which, as they uh, say, had been greatly exaggerated, Forrest made a point of leaving the hospital and being especially visible among the men under his command. Word of Forrest's return from the grave inevitably got back to Sherman who was disappointed but not surprised to learn of Smith's failure to end Forrest's life. The truth was, Forrest was alive and his cavalry hadn't been destroyed, though both had been beaten up pretty badly, and neither were in much shape to do any damage to Sherman's supply lines. But Sherman didn't know that, and so upon learning that Forrest was still in the fight, Sherman ordered A.J. Smith to get up off his butt, gather up his men ASAP, and make another push to take out Forrest. And starting in early August, A.J. Smith did just that, pushing south toward Oxford, Mississippi with 18,000 men. Forrest attempted to consolidate and rally what men were still fit for action, uh, establishing a flexible defensive line along Hurricane Creek. But when Smith pressed the issue on August 18th, Forrest recognized that he didn't have much of any chance of prevailing. Uh, He needed to come up with a plan B. What he devised very well may be Uh, the last really great track on the Nathan Bedford Forrest's Greatest Hits album. In the face of a significantly larger army, Forrest would split his command roughly in half. The cavalry that was in the best shape for rapid movement would come with Forrest, circling down and around A.J. Smith's army, and make a surprise visit to the rebel commander's former hometown of Memphis, which was now serving as a major Union base and supply depot. It would be a night march in the mud, relying on impromptu engineering to get across swollen waterways. Once they got to Memphis, well, the plan was to grab whatever opportunities presented themselves. Now, as for the other half of the rebel force, it would stay put under Forrest's uh, right-hand man and sometimes rival, General James Chalmers. Chalmers' job was basically to look like he had a lot more men than he did and to distract A.J. Smith from Forrest's movement, hold the Yankees in place, pretend to be really serious about having a serious battle, but without actually engaging. For his part, Chalmers was fairly successful, 
having picked up a few of Forrest's tricks for creating an impression of a larger force. There was some fighting, but A.J. Smith never committed to the full-on attack that would have, in almost certainly, uh, blown Chalmers' smaller force out of the water and forced a hasty retreat, leaving North Mississippi unprotected. And most importantly, Smith never realized what Forrest was up to, at least not until it was too late. So, what was Forrest up to? If I were making this story into a screenplay, this scene would emphasize the early morning quiet and stillness as Memphis sleeps through the early a.m. hours of August 21st. Maybe have a shot of the ranking Union officer in the city, Cadwallader Washburn, just waking up, probably still in his nightshirt. Then maybe you start to hear hoofbeats and you see quick-cut scenes of rebel cavaliers capturing Union pickets caught completely unaware in the outskirts of Memphis. And then, William Forrest, uh, Bedford's brother, in command of a raiding party and a former Memphis resident himself, crashes through the entranceway of one of the city's largest, nicest hotels, on horseback, pistol in hand. He demands that Stephen Hurlburt and Washburn, the two highest-ranking Union officers in town, both residing at that hotel, be handed over to him. Fortunately for Hurlbut, though, he hadn't stayed in his room that night, and thereby avoided detainment. Instead, William Forrest left a calling card. Literally. Uh, it read, quote, General Forrest and party, thank you for the invitation to Memphis. End quote. Washburn was uh, likewise able to narrowly avoid arrest, but William Forrest did manage to capture one of his, his uh, blue dress uniforms, snatched right from Washburn's bedroom. Hurlbut. Uh, displaying a sense of humor about the whole ordeal, had this to say, quote, They removed me from command because I couldn't keep Forrest out of western Tennessee. Now Washburn can't keep him out of his own bedroom. End quote. By that point, rebel cavaliers were running amok up and down the streets of Memphis, making a lot of noise but not accomplishing anything of strategic importance. And, of course, there were plenty of Union soldiers in Memphis, they had been caught off guard, but they were waking up and starting to organize to push back against the raiders. And it was about that time, General Bedford Forrest put out the order to pull out of Memphis. Get out while the getting is good. And with about 600 Union prisoners, the rebels left Memphis. Well, most of them did. A few got a little bit too big for their britches, or uh, happened upon some booze during their visit in the city. And they ended up stuck in Memphis as prisoners. Now you can't leave. The Union uh, cavalry colonel, who was assigned the job of chasing the rebels who had actually obeyed Forrest's order to get out of town, uh, has a name that sounds like he should be a pop rock singer from the mid to late 90s. Matthew Starr. Starr did his duty, making a genuine effort to catch up to and engage the withdrawing Confederates. And when the Union cavalry did track them down, Bedford Forrest personally led the rear guard that turned around to push back the Yankee pursuers. In the small but vicious clash that followed, Colonel Matthew Sweet made the mistake of seeking out Forrest personally for single combat. Uh, again, it would make for a dramatic scene. The young leader engaging the force of a fabled opponent, searching the field for the famous soldier, and then engaging him in single combat. Uh, at this point in the war, Forrest is pretty well beat up. He's been shot more than once, has a chronic skin condition, body still aching from a fall from his horse prior to Fort Pillow. 
But with all that said, Forrest is still a dangerous man to take on. Colonel Starr was courageous, but that was not enough. An observer recalled that uh, upon the conclusion of the fight, Starr was mortally wounded, with Forrest's saber, quote, entirely through his body, end quote. Oof. When all was said and done uh, with the Memphis raid, Forrest's Cavaliers had made it back safely into rebel territory with their 600 Union prisoners, who he had essentially no resources to feed or clothe. Prisoner exchanges were not really an option anymore at this point in the war, so Forrest asked Washburn to send food and clothing for the captured Yankees, a request with which Washburn uh, complied. Now, when we last left A.J. Smith, he was still facing off with General James Chalmers uh, along Hurricane Creek in Mississippi, debating whether or not to attack. Well, when A.J. Smith, uh, and the A.J. stands for Andrew Jackson, uh, if you're wondering, when Smith learned of the Memphis raid, he hightailed it for Tennessee after putting Oxford, Mississippi to the torch. By September, Forrest was back in Mississippi, and Richard Taylor, son of President Zachary Taylor, was in overall command of the department. Taylor decided that he wanted Forrest focusing on hitting Union supply lines in Tennessee. By that point, it was uh, too late to stop Sherman. Better late than never, I guess. Though Forrest ended up lacking uh, the strength to seriously threaten Union supply lines anyway. On the 21st, uh, Forrest embarked with 4,500 cavalry, moving east across the northern section of Alabama. The first stop-off was in Athens, Alabama, at a uh, small Union fort manned by about uh, 750 Union troops, primarily uh, black troops and Tennessee Union volunteers, not dissimilar from uh, Fort Pillow. Forrest demanded that the Union colonel in command surrender the fort, helpfully offering to allow the opposing officer to observe the 8,000 men accompanying him. And just to be clear, Forrest didn't have 8,000 men. It was just the biggest number he thought he could get away with. Ultimately, the Athens fort opted to surrender, along with a small relief force um, that had come to the fort's aid at just the wrong time. The next step was another small Union garrison uh, guarding a, a minor railroad junction. Forrest again demanded surrender, but didn't get the answer he wanted this time. Uh, he ordered his top artillery aide, John Morton, to unleash the rebel guns. After a few shells found their mark, a small white cloth was visible in a window of one of the buildings that was occupied by the Yankees. Morton, who believed the Yankees were surrendering, called off the bombardment. Forrest ordered him to start it back up, and Morton pointed out the flag. At that, Morton remembered Forrest saying, quote, Well, I don't see any flag. Keep firing. It'll take a sheet to attract my eye at this distance. End quote. Uh, when a larger white flag appeared, then Forrest accepted the surrender. Uh, after capturing another garrison at Sulphur Springs and a brief stop at Pulaski, which Forrest ultimately decided he could not take, the rebels opted to move south along the railroad before heading for the Tennessee River, having learned that another substantial Union force, this one consisting of multiple columns commanded by George Thomas, was on their tail. Thomas concluded that this was the best chance yet to bring down Forrest, who he declared he would press to the death. By October 5th, though, Forrest's cavalry was ready to cross the river at Florence. The water was high, and the rear guard shielding the Yankees was pressed pretty thin, so Forrest had his men cross with a combination of ferries and good old-fashioned swimming. It took a couple days, but they almost all made it across, 
and Forrest had the opportunity to throw another man under his command into the water. This time, a junior officer drew his ire by not doing his share of the rowing that was needed to get the ferry across the river. When the young man explained that he was a lieutenant and operating an oar was grunt work, he was perfunctorily shoved into the river. Uh, When a few other rebels pulled the chastened officer out of the water, Forrest made clear that if he had to throw him in the river again, the next time he'd tell the men to let the young officer drown. Uh, This story reminds me of, of one of Forrest's many good quotes. Quote, Kindness to a bad soldier does injustice to those who are faithful and true. End quote. Forrest was probably thinking more about soldiers who were insubordinate, which he himself was on occasion, or even uh, more likely, cowardly, which he was not. But uh, even so, it's an interesting quote. Having once again evaded the Union pursuit and the fall of Atlanta having made his operations less pressing, Forrest took a few weeks off before coming up with a new plan to harass Union River transports. What he had in mind was to set up artillery uh, along the Tennessee River near Johnsonville to hit the Union transports in the area. They moved out on October 24th and had the traps set by the 28th. The guns were positioned in three spots, one of which was on an island in the river. The plan was to let the boats approach unmolested until reaching the middle position Uh, then to announce their presence, ideally drawing a surrender when the captain realized how many guns were aimed at the boat. Otherwise, they'd unload on the boat, but hopefully he'd be able to salvage at least some of the cargo. They waited for a worthy prize before kicking the plan into action. Make sure they got something good before the Union troops in the area knew what was going on. Uh, The second day, after getting into position, a fully loaded transport approached. As planned, the firing started when the transport reached the middle of the three positions. In response, the Yankee skipper abandoned the boat to the rebels, resulting in a huge haul of valuable food and supplies. After another capture prize, one of the Union captains sent word further along the river to stop sending boats into the area, and the prey dried up. So it was time to revise the plan. The two captured Union transports were in fairly decent shape. So Forrest had a couple uh, artillery pieces placed on each and rechristened them as Confederate freshwater gunboats, uh, pointing as captains, two of the officers under his command who knew at least a little bit about riverboats. The first boat was quickly captured by Union gunboats and ran aground. So the second was instructed to stay close to the rebel artillery positions and try to lure Union boats into the trap. But by that point, all the local Union authorities were wise to Forrest's plan, and they didn't allow any more boats to get near Forrest's island. So things started to get boring, and Forrest decided to switch gears and threatened the large Union supply depot about three miles away at Johnsonville. They moved at night and positioned the guns in the dark, all undercover directly across the river from the Johnsonville depot. The positioning would allow them to fire on the depot while the artillery was protected by the river to their front. Everything was positioned, concealed, and ready to go by the morning of November 4th, and the covert movement had been completed successfully, so the Union troops at the depot had no idea Forrest was about to bear down on them. The firing began early in the afternoon, initially focusing on three Union gunboats that were moored uh, nearby for Johnsonville's protection. Then they opened up on the depot itself. The Union base was uh, taken completely off guard, and once the three gunboats had been neutralized, was effectively defenseless. 
The firing continued throughout the afternoon until the Johnsonville Depot had been effectively obliterated. By that evening, in Forrest's words, quote, The wharf, for nearly one mile up and down, presented one solid sheet of flame, end quote. Like the approach, the withdrawal was carried out under darkness, though Forrest noted that they were able to see a little better, quote, by the light of the enemy's burning property. In his report, Forrest claimed that the small foray into naval warfare resulted in sinking or burning of four gunboats, 14 transports, and a whole slew of barges, to go along with the capture or destruction of $6.7 million in property, 26 artillery pieces, and 150 POWs. Union reports valued the property at about a third of Forrest's estimate. But that's still a pretty impressive number um, when you consider that rebel losses only amounted to uh, 11 casualties. By November of 1864, General Sherman had much more important things to worry about than Forrest's movement against Johnsonville. By that point, he was preparing for his march to the sea. But he still took the time to let Grant know, quote, that devil Forrest is making havoc, end quote. Forrest was a holy terror when he had room to move and freedom to operate as he saw fit. Grant and Sherman both viewed Forrest as the only real Confederate threat left in the Western theater, and Sherman had made neutralizing that threat a priority. But thus far, the efforts had proven unsuccessful. The Confederates, on the other hand, found an effective way to minimize Forrest's impact and that was to put him under the command of John Bell Hood. We haven't discussed Hood all that much. Suffice to say, he was a tough-as-nails Texan who had had some success in smaller commands, but was hopelessly incompetent in command of a larger army. But in command he was, and had been since relieving Joseph Johnston on Jefferson Davis's orders. Since then, Atlanta had fallen, and Sherman was raising hell through Georgia on his way for Savannah having concluded that dealing with Hood's army was no longer a priority. Hood couldn't very well go chasing Sherman, so instead he was planning a campaign into Middle Tennessee, leaving from Alabama. His goal was to disrupt the Union supply lines supporting Sherman, though Sherman's bummers had made those supply lines far less important. And also to defeat a small Union army, about 25,000 men, under John Schofield that was isolated, occupying Columbia along the Duck River. Towards that end, Hood summoned Forrest to join him and take command of the rebel cavalry accompanying the campaign. All told, Forrest had about 6,000 men. For the most part, he had experienced veterans that he knew he could count on in a fight. Unfortunately, though, both the men and the horses they rode were in very poor shape, malnourished, and many slowed down by wounds suffered in earlier campaigns. Hood initially wanted to cross the Duck River and get to Schofield's rear, but Schofield withdrew from his position along the river and headed for Franklin, Tennessee. Hood dispatched Forrest to try to circle around and prevent Schofield's army from reaching Franklin, uh, but that was unrealistic. Even firing on all cylinders, it would have been asking a lot for the Southern Cavaliers to get uh, around the Yankee army, seize the road, and then obstruct the movement of an army five times larger than their own force. So Schofield, marching at night, made it to Franklin and dug in so that by the time Hood was in a position to threaten Schofield, the Yankees occupied formidable entrenchments. As a quick recap, uh, through most of that summer, Joseph Johnston had commanded the Rebel Army of Tennessee that sought to repel Sherman's campaign against Atlanta. Johnston gradually gave ground, but he had done a, a pretty good job of protecting his army, 
usually inflicting more casualties than he took in the series of engagements and withdrawals as Sherman pressed toward Atlanta. But then Johnston was replaced with John Bell Hood on the eve of the Battle of Peachtree Creek, even though Hood himself opined to Jefferson Davis that it was a bad idea to abruptly switch commanders with the armies all but engaged. And at Peachtree Creek, the Army of Tennessee took heavy losses, leading to Atlanta's fall. Hood's approach was the polar opposite of what Johnston's had been. Even after Peachtree Creek, Hood maintained an aggressive posture, even as Sherman all but ignored him and prepared for his run on Savannah. Now, Hood had Schofield separated from the rest of the Union forces in Tennessee. The numbers were pretty even, uh, which looked like pretty good odds compared to what the rebels had been facing. So Hood decided to press forward and force an engagement. Now, the problem was that Schofield had dug in, and so the rebels would be pressing forward against entrenched Union defenders. Forrest, who hadn't been at Peachtree Creek or with the Army of Tennessee during the Atlanta campaign, advised Hood against an assault that everyone seemed to think was a fool's errand other than Hood. When the advice was disregarded, Forrest suggested that a flanking attack by the cavalry might be worth a shot. If Forrest's horsemen could get on the Yankee flank, they might be able to force Schofield's army out of their entrenchments uh, with enfilading fire. But that, too, was disregarded. Hood was dead set on sending six divisions in a naked frontal assault on Schofield's works. And notwithstanding an early push that momentarily threatened to compromise the Union Center, it went about as well as you might have expected. The attackers were torn to pieces, taking over 6,000 casualties compared to about as third as many for the Yankees. And tellingly, rebel fatalities numbered as many as 10 times more than the Union killed. The Confederate losses included a devastating 14 generals, six of whom died during the day's bloody fighting. Most notable among them was probably Irish-born Arkansan Patrick Claiborne, uh, who was probably the Army of Tennessee's best infantry commander in the field. Following Peachtree Creek, the rebel army had been bloodied, but it was still formidable. After Franklin, it was seriously wounded. The loss of fighting men was a major blow, and the further loss of a substantial part of the army's experienced officers made things much worse. That evening, with Hood finished bashing his head against the brick wall that was Schofield's entrenchments, for the time being, the Yankee army leisurely packed up under dark and continued its march for Nashville. Forrest attempted unsuccessfully to pursue the Yankee withdrawal, so instead he tried to block traffic on the Cumberland River and disrupt the railroad supplying Nashville, before being dispatched by Hood for an attack on a Union garrison at Murfreesboro. Hood's thinking was that the movement against Murfreesboro would coax Union General George Thomas out of his fortifications at Nashville, but that didn't work. Instead, the movement against Murfreesboro was unsuccessful, and when Thomas was ready to confront Hood at Nashville, Hood didn't have Forrest and the cavalry that was with him. Now, Forrest wasn't present for the Battle of Nashville, so we're just going to kind of gloss over it. Uh, Basically, Hood, with about 30,000 men, had marched out from Franklin to the Union stronghold at Nashville. Upon arriving December 2nd, Hood began digging in, having at least learned from the Battle of Franklin that assaults on earthworks were foolish. And Nashville was indeed very well fortified and well manned by about 55,000 veterans under George Thomas. Hood wanted Thomas to attack him, but Thomas stayed cautious, and the armies more or less stared each other down for a couple weeks. And it was during that period that Hood sent Forrest out for Murfreesboro. 
So when Thomas was ready to attack on December 15th, Hood's strength was diminished, and he was already outnumbered by about two to one anyway. The battle was a decisive victory for Thomas and his Yankees. Well, Thomas was actually a Virginian, but uh, I guess he's, he still counts as a Yankee for present purposes. Even on the offensive, the Union Army dished out twice as many casualties as it took. Of the Confederate losses, which numbered somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000, the largest part were men who either went missing or were captured during the battle. By the battle's conclusion, the once formidable Army of Tennessee had been effectively destroyed, and what was left of it was desperately trying to move south, back into Alabama. Forrest doesn't really re-enter the story until December 18th, when he reunited with the remnants of Hood's army as it retreated. Hood had been at least temporarily unnerved by the results at Nashville, and Forrest informally took over command of the army, organizing a cascading withdrawal, with multiple lines taking turns forming up for battle and then retreating, and leading the rear guard fighting from the front, preserving what little of the army was left. By the end of December, the Confederates were recrossing the Tennessee River to relative safety. The cavalry divisions under Forrest had taken a serious pounding during the rear guard action. The men were undernourished and didn't have hardly any supplies, and they didn't have any reliable means of resupplying. The command was still more or less intact, but Forrest realized that without at least a little time to recuperate, they might not hold together much longer. So he gave them some time off and instructed the men who could to go home and try to round up more food and gear. During the speech when he dismissed them, Forrest had this to say to his tired, beat-up, haggard troopers, quote, Soldiers, you now rest for a short time from your labors. During the respite, prepare for future action. Your commanding general is ready to lead you again to the defense of the common cause, and he appeals to you by remembrance of the glories of your past career your desolated homes, your insulted women and suffering children, and above all else, by the memory of your dead comrades, to yield a ready obedience to discipline, and to buckle on the armor anew for the fight. Fight while the enemy pollutes your soil. Fight as long as he denies your rights. Fight until independence has been achieved. Fight for home, children, liberty, and all you hold dear. You can never again unite with those who have murdered your sons, outraged your helpless families, and with demonic malice, wantonly destroyed your property, and now seek to make you slaves. End quote. Now, that sounds like Forrest was ready to keep up the fight. He appealed to just about everything imaginable to try to motivate his men. Family, home, fallen brothers in arms, political independence, and revenge against the Yankees. Privately, though, Forrest recognized that the Confederacy, at least in its current form, was on its last legs. One of his staff officers recalled Forrest observing, quote, It's only a question of time as to when General Lee's lines at Petersburg will be broken. For Grant is wearing him out with unlimited resources of men and money. He must ultimately force Lee to leave Virginia or surrender, end quote. And in late 1864, early 1865, it really was a desperate situation for the rebels. Lee was on the ropes in the east, and the once proud Army of Tennessee had been all but destroyed in the west. Forrest knew all that, and he had a keen enough mind to understand that victory was no longer in the cards, especially after Lincoln's re-election killed the last semi-realistic chance of winning independence through a northern public disenchanted with the war. Yet still, 
Forrest beseeched his men to fight to the end, make the war personal, and never consider for a moment reunification with northern brethren who had destroyed the South and, as Forrest put it, wanted to make slaves of the Southerners. When you consider all of that together, it makes Forrest look an awful lot like a guy who was intent on continuing the fight as a guerrilla. If there was a single Confederate officer who seemed both willing and able to take up the mantle of a guerrilla leader, it was Forrest. In January, he was given command of all cavalry out west and soon after promoted to lieutenant general, establishing a headquarters in Mississippi near the Alabama border. But he didn't have much time to enjoy the post before he was once again scrambling to confront a Union advance. In this case, it was Brigadier General James Wilson, in command of just under 14,000 men. On paper, Forrest had about 10,000 cavaliers, but they were scattered throughout the department, and many of the men and their horses were no longer fit for service. After a couple-week delay caused by bad weather, Wilson began moving rapidly into and through Alabama, including a stop-off in Tuscaloosa to burn the university there. Forrest could no longer expect to match the speed of the Yankee horsemen, and in fact, he ordered his men uh, not to run their horses unless absolutely necessary. Forrest's plan was to hit Wilson from two sides at the same time, uh, with disparate segments of the rebel cavalry to reunite just as the battle commenced. To make something like that work, though, the two sides needed to be in communication, and unfortunately for Forrest, the communication occurred by courier, and that courier was captured by Union cavalry. The capture was doubly detrimental. Not only did the approaching rebel cavalry not receive Forrest's message, the Yankee officers did. Combined, the two groups would have still been significantly outnumbered. Now knowing Forrest's intentions, Wilson wisely took measures to ensure that those two rebel groups would not meet. So when the Battle of Ebenezer Church occurred on April 1st, Forrest only had somewhere around 2,500 men, many of whom were untested Alabama state militia. Wilson brought over 9,000 into the fight. Forrest's men, though, had a strong covered position and put up a stiff defense, repulsing multiple Union advances before the line collapsed. Forrest received yet another battle wound, uh, this one from the saber of a Union officer who ended up being uh, one of the last of the 33 confirmed kills Forrest notched during the war. Uh, With the Confederate lines broken, Forrest fell back to the Selma defenses. Including the men that came with Forrest, Selma had about 3,000 defenders. Many of them were recent conscripts, teenage boys and older men, who, earlier in the war, would have been considered too young or too old to fight. Wilson wisely pushed forward and attacked Selma without delay. The city's defenses quickly collapsed, netting Wilson around 2,700 POWs, in addition to the city itself and the few guns defending it. Forrest managed a fighting escape alongside a small group of his toughest veterans. After a river crossing brought relative protection from Wilson, the rebel band raided a small Union garrison under cover of night, killing 40 or so Union soldiers, some while they slept. Wilson was predictably incensed uh, upon learning of the raid, remarking, quote, Such incidents as this are far too frequent with Forrest. Yet he seemed not only to resent but have a plausible excuse for the cruel excesses which were charged against him, end quote. So here we are. It's April 1865. Forrest is no longer in command of a major army. Now, he didn't know this, of course, but Lee was close to surrender in Virginia. 
And the former Army of Tennessee was no longer much of an army and had left Tennessee, marching east in what would prove a futile effort to unite with Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. After Selma's fall, Forrest is on the move, accompanied by a small but deadly effective contingent of seasoned veterans. Both he and the men under his command are past the point where they hesitate to sneak into a Union encampment and kill the Yankees in their sleep. At this juncture, it really seems like the next logical chapter in the story is going to be Forrest leading a brutal guerrilla insurgency as the now unquestionably dominant Union forces attempt to consolidate their occupation of the Deep South. And who better to lead the rebel guerrilla struggle? Forrest is adaptable. He uses unconventional tactics effectively. He's at his best when improvising on the run, seamlessly using the landscape to his advantage. He commands the unquestioned loyalty and complete confidence of his men, and most of those men are now experienced killers. Most of them grew up in the nearby areas now subject to Union occupation. Farms and homes destroyed, they don't have a lot to lose but their lives. And Forrest has reason to believe that if he surrenders, he'll be tried for treason and hanged. That was a very real prospect for high-ranking Confederate military and civil leaders, He's seriously considering a last stand for an honorable combat death, or making arrangements to flee the country, and Forrest penned what reads like a goodbye letter to his 18-year-old son, William. Against that backdrop, Forrest received an invitation for a meeting with General Wilson, the purpose of which could only be to discuss surrender terms. Forrest took the meeting, and it went down a lot differently than his prior meetings with Union officers. First, he was in awful condition physically, bruised, beaten, and limping, in pain from the several wounds sustained in the past four years of fighting. Rather than conveying self-assurance and braggadocio, Forrest was defiant, at least at first. But after speaking for a few minutes, he and Wilson built a rapport, and Forrest, who was the absolute most detested rebel to many a Yankee, made a good impression on the Union officers. One of Wilson's staff officers uh, recorded of Forrest, quote, his Language indicates a very low education. But then, at the same time, the Yankee officer was impressed with a becomingly aristocratic mien, which he undoubtedly possesses, impressed with the mental power displayed, quickness of perceptive comprehension, engaging frankness. I confess that I was frequently lost in real admiration. End quote. Remember now, this is a dude the Union leadership had been trying to kill for a while. In the Northern Papers, Forrest was public enemy number one, or at least he was high up on the list. So for a Union officer to confess real admiration was noteworthy. On the other hand, in the John Brown episode, we saw that several Southern leaders expressed respect for Brown's courage and stoicism. And there are plenty of accounts of federal cavalrymen speaking highly of American Indian leaders that they were trying to kill. So maybe it's not as strange as it might seem at first. Regardless, the meeting between Forrest and Wilson was inconclusive, but it had the effect of opening up lines of frank communication. And not long after, word arrived at the surrender of Lee, and then Johnston, and then Richard Taylor. And Forrest received a formal demand of surrender from Wilson, offering the same terms that Grant had extended to Lee at Appomattox. Union leaders, from Wilson and his staff locally, to the Grand Army's general staff in Washington, were fairly certain that Forrest was going to refuse to surrender. For the reasons we just mentioned, they believed that 
If any major rebel commander was going to continue the war as a guerrilla, it was bound to be Nathan Bedford Forrest. In fact, General Sherman described the idea that remnants of rebel armies would form up into guerrilla bands under the overall command of Nathan Bedford Forrest as, quote, what I fear most, end quote. The still defiant governor of Mississippi was prepared to continue the fighting, or at least to tell other people to keep fighting, and he instructed Forrest to gather what cavalry he could still muster and leave Mississippi to join Kirby Smith in Texas. But Forrest declined. Instead, he replied to the governor, quote, Any man who is in favor of further prosecution of this war is a fit subject for a lunatic asylum and ought to be sent there immediately, end quote. He called his men together for one final speech, saying, quote, That we are beaten is a self-evident fact, and to continue the fighting would be the very height of folly and rashness. You have been good soldiers. You can be good citizens. Obey the laws, preserve your honor, and the government to which you have surrendered can afford to be, and will be, magnanimous, end quote. And with that message, Forrest, having categorically rejected guerrilla warfare, ended his military career in anticlimactic fashion, leaving Standhope Uwati, the Cherokee chief also known as Standwadi and Degataga, as the answer to two interesting Civil War trivia questions. First, Uwati was, along with Eli Parker of the Seneca tribe, uh, one of only two American Indians to serve as a general in the Civil War. Parker famously accompanied U.S. Grant to the meeting with Lee at Appomattox, And second, and more relevant for current purposes, Uwadi was also the final Confederate general to surrender while still in command of troops in the field, which he did on June 23, 1865, in Choctaw Territory situated in the present state of Oklahoma. Instead of fleeing the country or heading west of the Mississippi to continue the fight, Forrest hopped on a train to Memphis and did his best to resume everyday life. Union officers now responsible for governance of the area remarked that Forrest was a good influence on the locals, like Lee counseling fellow Southerners to focus on reconciliation. Or as Forrest said to a reporter, and he was not shy about talking to reporters after the war, quote, I have done all in my power to break up the government, but I have found it a useless undertaking and am now resolved to stand by the government as earnestly and honestly as I have fought against it, end quote. Since it was still spring, the first order of business was to try to get crops planted at his plantation. To do so, he would need some help, since relying on compelled slave labor was no longer an option. So he entered into a partnership with a group of Union officers and hired 20 former slaves, who Union General Oliver Howard reported Forrest dealt with fair and upright. Now think about this for a minute. The war ends, and within just a couple weeks or months, Forrest is more or less seamlessly getting back to business in a business partnership with Union officers who had been literally focused on killing him, and him personally, and hiring as employees freed blacks who he could very well have been buying and selling not long before. It's remarkable. Forrest was indicted and informed that he would be tried for treason, but as with multiple other Confederates, the authorities decided to never get around to scheduling the trial. And when you think about it, if you're genuinely concerned that a guerrilla insurgency might break out, putting on trial and hanging a well-known figurehead like Forrest would have seemed like a needlessly provocative move. 
There was some self-interest involved with how Forrest treated his hired hands. Uh, Southern agriculture was suffering from a massive labor shortage. Many former slaves unsurprisingly left the plantations uh, where they had previously lived, and a significant part of, of what you might call the white working class had been killed or rendered disabled by the war. So if you're a prospective employer, you needed to be a better option than the next guy. And that was what Forrest was trying to do, for now. Uh, But he was already coming up with some other plans to address the labor shortage. In Forrest's mind, former Confederate soldiers weren't the obvious choice for hired hands uh, to make up for the freed slaves, many of whom were no longer interested in working in Southern agriculture. Uh, The plan that he advocated for was to basically recruit immigrants from Africa. Now, we're not talking about kidnapping people. He was in favor of trying to convince Africans to move to the U.S. uh, with promises of paid work. Uh, Another similar idea was to recruit Chinese laborers, who, uh, of course, provided a large source of labor for the railroads. Neither plan really ended up panning out. But in case you ever wondered what Nathan Bedford Forrest's position was uh, on immigration, he was... uh, all four using immigration as a source of labor, uh, specifically labor that would work cheap and not have a lot of bargaining power, uh, to replace the previous practice, now banned. Forrest would never be tried for treason for his actions during the Civil War, but as fate would have it, he was tried under a different indictment in October 1866, relating to the death of Thomas Edwards, a former slave who had been employed as a paid laborer on Forrest's plantation. I'm just going to kind of nutshell the facts of this case because um, there's maybe some backstory that we we really don't need to go into. Uh, The backdrop that we need to know is that there was a cholera outbreak in the living quarters where the um, freed blacks who were working for forests were living. Um, Forrest visited the area to supervise drainage of the wet areas and generally trying to to get things cleared up um, to slow down the disease spread. According to Forrest's account, while the cleanup effort was underway, Thomas Edwards, quote, commenced cussing and abusing his wife about his dinner. Uh, Forrest then tells Edwards that wife beating is not allowed on his plantation. Edwards pulls a knife and cuts Forrest. Forrest hits Edwards with a broom handle, and then the two of them wrestle for control of a nearby axe. Forrest gets the axe and hits Edwards in the head with the handle, which kills him. Now, Edwards' wife denied Forrest's account, uh, though another former slave who was there backed up Forrest. There was also testimony that during a prior incident, Edwards had said, quote, I will whip my wife when I damn please. If General Forrest attempts to interfere with me in the privilege, I'll cut his goddamn guts out, end quote. Now, a complicating factor here is that uh, not long before uh, all of this, Edwards had been part of a group of former slaves who had pushed back and taken up arms when a supervisor who Forrest had hired, or his partners had hired, threatened to beat them for not working hard enough. Ultimately, the way it turned out was that Forrest was arrested and put on trial for Edwards' death, and then he was found not guilty by a jury. It seemed like Edwards actually did have a history of, of hitting his wife, And at one point in the altercation, he almost certainly slashed Forrest with a knife. But, you know, Forrest also had a famously short and violent temper and seems to have had a knack for finding his way into situations where someone gets killed. 
Uh, Again, quoting uh, Union General James Wilson, such incidents as this are far too frequent with Forrest, end quote. Okay, so now it's time to discuss the institution with which Nathan Bedford Forrest is most infamously associated. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, you know that I'm talking about the Ku Klux Klan. Forrest never fully admitted to being involved with the KKK, but many other members acknowledged that he was involved. As an organization, it was officially formed uh, in or around April of 1867 by a group of former Confederate officers. The stated purpose was to protect former Confederates and white Southerners generally from political oppression by Northern occupiers. And a big part of that was to make sure that the people who had political and economic power before the war continued to run things after the war, and that the people who did not, specifically the former slaves, did not acquire said political power, at least uh, any outside of their own well-defined communities. It's worth mentioning that there were basically two iterations of the KKK. The first one, and the one that we're going to be talking about, was formed shortly after the war and after a fairly brief but high-profile life cycle that included some intense violence, was largely suppressed by the Grant administration. And the second version was a rebirth in the early 20th century inspired by the film Birth of a Nation. Most of the impressions we have uh, of the Ku Klux Klan are based on the second version, which spread into a lot of areas in the North uh, also, whereas the original iteration was more or less limited to the South. We're not going to do too much of a deep dive into the KKK, but for anyone not familiar with it, uh, I think the group can fairly be described as a terrorist organization, uh, working from the definition of of terrorism as the the use of organized violence against uh, civilians to achieve political ends, uh, though the term terrorist was not yet in use. The, The basic concept in execution, was that members would conceal their identities, uh, wearing masks in public and and scaring the hell out of their political enemies through uh, overt intimidation and uh, occasional targeted violence. Arson, um, physical beatings, and and murder were were very much on the table. The goal was to intimidate the targets and people who identified with them into dropping out of the political process. Sure, the government says you have the right to vote or run for office, but is it really worth all that trouble? If the wrong uh, people or groups tried to organize politically or to campaign for Republicans or otherwise oppose their agenda, uh, the group would make an example out of them to frighten everyone else. The Klan's principal targets were the black population and Northerners who were in the South, especially anyone who got involved in politics on the wrong side. Now, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, theoretically, I guess, still exists today. But it has been pretty thoroughly uh, delegitimized and and marginalized so that the the consensus perception regarding the modern-day Klan is is that it's a collection of FBI informants and and morons who who don't really uh, merit serious consideration. Now, that most definitely was not the case in uh, Forrest's day. This was a serious, well-organized operation composed uh, primarily of former soldiers, at least in the early days. And at its original peak, it had over a half a million members, perhaps more, and it was capable of projecting power throughout the South. Forrest wasn't exactly a founding member, but the founders wanted a high-profile Confederate running the operation 
to help with recruiting and with organization. They asked Forrest, and he agreed, taking the title Grand Wizard. In the beginning, Forrest wanted the KKK's focus to be uh, opposing Reconstruction through legitimate politics, in part by convincing newly enfranchised blacks that it was genuinely in their best interests to vote for the Southern Democrats who had been running things prior to the war. And in 1867, he gave a speech to a black civic group in Memphis at their invitation, encouraging them to vote for the right candidates. Forrest urged the black residents of Memphis to, quote, stand by the men who raised you, who nursed you when you were sick, and who took care of you when you were little children, end quote. He argued that the Yankees were cynically exploiting former slaves for political purposes, and that fellow Southerners were your true friends. And he told a reporter who uh, brought up uh, political violence that had been had started popping up uh, against the freed blacks, quote, I have no powder to burn killing Negroes. I intend to kill the radicals. And he also said of the former slaves, quote, We want him here among us. He is the only laboring class we have. And more than that, I would sooner trust him than the white scalawags or carpetbaggers, end quote. Now, I think uh, Foghorn Leghorn used to also uh, use the terms scalawags and carpetbaggers. Uh, and if you're curious, um, carpetbagger was, according to um, History.com, quote, used to describe Northerners who moved to the South after the war, supposedly in an effort to get rich or acquire political power. A carpetbagger was a low-class schemer with little education who could carry everything he owned in a cheap carpet bag. Carpetbaggers supported the Republicans and were said to be corrupt profiteers who took advantage of the financial and political instability in the devastated post-war South. End quote. Scalawags, on the other hand, were, quote, white Southerners who supported Reconstruction-era Republicans. And I'm again quoting uh, History.com's uh, article on carpetbaggers and scalawags. Their political enemies considered them traitors to the South and just as bad, if not worse, than carpetbaggers. Scalawags included non-slaveholding small-time farmers, middle-class professionals, and others who had stayed loyal to the Union. Although the exact origins of scalawag are unknown, it was in use in the United States before the Civil War as a term for both a farm animal of little value and a ne'er-do-well individual. End quote. In Forrest's telling, carpetbaggers and scalawags were the real problem. They were ultimately responsible for the conflict developing between white and black Southerners. And this is how Forrest described the uh, KKK itself in an interview in 1868 when he was still involved with the organization, at least probably. Quote, It is a protective political military organization. I am willing to show any man the constitution of the society. The members are sworn to recognize the government of the United States. It does not say anything at all about the government of Tennessee. Its objects originally were protection against loyal leagues and the Grand Army of the Republic. But after it became general, it was found that political matters and interests could best be promoted within it. And it was then made a political organization, giving its support, of course, to the Democratic Party. There were some foolish young men who put masks on their faces and rode over the country, frightening Negroes, but orders have been issued to stop that, and it has ceased. You may say further that three members of the Ku Klux Klan have been court-martialed and shot for violations of the orders not to disturb or molest people, end quote. Now, Forrest, uh, he was always cagey about the precise role that he played, and he consistently denounced uh, violent tactics. 
but he did acknowledge participating in a planned military response to the Tennessee government's threat to call up uh, militia to oppose the KKK. In public, Forrest pushed for peace and calm, but privately he was rallying and arming former soldiers, stating, quote, If the militia attack us, we will resist to the last, and I could raise 40,000 men in five days ready for the field, end quote. The military confrontation never materialized. But Forrest's efforts, and again, we're talking about Forrest's public efforts. It's hard to say uh, for sure what, if anything, he was up to behind the scenes. Uh, His efforts to steer the Klan toward legitimate politics and to win over the newly enfranchised former slaves and to convince Klan members not to engage in violence failed. And the rapidly expanding organization almost immediately ran off the rails. By 1869, Forrest was issuing public orders for the entire KKK to cease further activity, with masks and robes to be burned. Forrest maintained that the Klan had been, quote, perverted from its original honorable and patriotic purposes, end quote, and was being used to achieve personal benefit and private purposes. Forrest anticipated that the federal crackdown that the Klan's violence was inspiring was bound to make matters worse for former Confederates. But instead of bringing a halt to further Klan activities, Forrest's 1869 cease and desist order resulted in the organization becoming less centralized and therefore harder for government officials to pin down, and even more secretive, with local cells now operating unrestrained uh, by a centralized authority. If he ever did, Forrest no longer had the ability to control the local groups, and he divorced himself from the KKK, again, at least publicly, um, not long after. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. One is that Forrest's split from the Klan after just two years was for show. It was optics, to use a modern political term. And he was still running things as the Grand Wizard behind the scenes. And the other view is that Forrest was genuinely bothered when the KKK became violent, and the split was very real. Uh, The order to disband was definitely issued. We know that much. But the question is whether it was sent out with a wink. Forrest biographer Jack Hurst suggests that Forrest's split may have been just a PR move. In his 1994 book on Forrest, he describes the former general's role like this, quote, Two years after Appomattox, Forrest was reincarnated as Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. As the Klan's first national leader, he became the lost cause's avenging angel, galvanizing a loose collection of boyish secret social clubs into a reactionary instrument of terror, end quote. Another uh, Forrest biographer, Brian Steele Wills, uh, writing in 1998, views the split as, as much more genuine. Uh, at the very least, Forrest tried to reconcile white and black Southerners in public. In a speech to a, a black organization in 1876, seven years after he had uh, exited the KKK, Forrest is quoted as saying, quote, I accept these flowers as a memento of reconciliation between the white and colored races of the southern states. I believe I can exert some influence and do much to assist the people in strengthening fraternal relations. I want to elevate you to take positions in law offices, in stores, on farms, and wherever you are capable of going. I don't propose to say anything about politics. You have a right to elect whom you please. Vote for the man you think best. Do as you consider right and honest in electing men for office. I came to meet you as friends. I want you to come nearer to us. When I can serve you, I will do so. We have but one flag, one country. Let us stand together. 
We may differ in color, but not in sentiment. Go to work, be industrious, live honestly, and act truly, and when you are oppressed, I'll come to your relief. I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for this opportunity to assure you that I am with you in heart and in hand. End quote. And in an 1874 letter to the governor of Tennessee, Forrest proposed to offer assistance in, quote, exterminating, uh, that's his word choice, exterminating individuals who had been carrying out wanton violence against the black population, describing the offenders as, quote, white marauders who disgrace their race by this cowardly murder of Negroes, end quote. Now, I definitely think um, Nathan Bedford Forrest was, was clever enough to come up with a plan to overtly denounce the uh, Klan while still covertly leading it. And he had clearly learned the benefits of decentralization during his military career. But between the speech to the black group that we just quoted, uh, which drew heavy criticism from Southern newspapers, and the bluntness of his letter to the, the governor of Tennessee— uh, I, I tend to lean toward the view that uh, Forrest didn't want anything to do um, with the KKK once it became plain uh, that the group genuinely had become violent. In 1871, Forrest was called before the U.S. Congress to testify about the KKK. He predictably uh, denied any relationship with the organization and even wouldn't acknowledge with any certainty whether it actually existed, uh, prefacing his responses with, quote, if such a clan exists, end quote. Forrest speculated to the Congressional Committee that, though he was not himself affiliated with the KKK and didn't have any direct knowledge about it, his impression was that the purpose of an organization like the Klan would be uh, to act as a counterbalance against groups of Northerners who were trying to exploit the prostrated former Confederate states, grabbing political power and economic resources while Southern leaders remained disenfranchised and financially ruined. As Forrest described it, Northerners were imposing their own political and social agendas on the South and cynically manipulating the newly freed black population. And almost as an afterthought, Forrest observed that Southerners were very much alarmed that emancipated black Southerners were holding night meetings, and becoming very insolent. So if the KKK existed, Forrest speculated, its purpose was probably to prevent something like the Haitian Revolution from happening in the U.S. While testifying, uh, Forrest uh, unfortunately suffered a, a remarkable loss of memory. More than once, he pled ignorance, or when he did have knowledge that he was willing to share, claimed that it was derived from newspaper reports. Uh, one of Forrest's friends later recalled, that not long after um, talking to Congress, Forrest said simply, quote, I have been lying like a gentleman, end quote. All things considered, Forrest played a surprisingly high-profile role in post-war politics, including uh, by attending the 1868 Democratic Convention as a delegate. Mostly, his role was to advocate on behalf of the defeated South. Uh, the New York Times, for example, printed a letter from Forrest complaining of the mendacious hostility Southerners were suffering at the hands of their legislative enemies. He insisted that the U.S. needed the active participation of Southern leaders in national politics, and many of them were still suffering under the, quote, accumulated weight of disenfranchisement, end quote. Forrest's advocacy for restoration of voting rights to Confederates is the context of the quote um, that we left off with last episode, a Cincinnati newspaper in active if uh, he supported extending the vote to freed blacks. And Forrest's initial reaction was to assert that he was adamantly against it and had even tried to convince the Democratic Party to commit to that position 
in its 1868 platform. But then Forrest decided that if freed blacks would support restoring the vote to former Confederates, he would be open to changing his mind. Uh, Though he received his pardon in 1868, Forrest's political role moving forward was mostly going to be behind the scenes. Uh, Not surprisingly, he was a very polarizing figure. In the South, Forrest could draw a crowd, and he did some limited campaigning for Democratic candidates. But in the North, uh, there were an awful lot of people, including many former Union soldiers um, who now formed a, a powerful voting bloc, who viewed Forrest with contempt. He was the butcher of Fort Pillow, after all. So his open involvement in Democratic Party politics became ammunition for Republican candidates. If you were in a close race, uh, for instance, for a House seat in a district with a lot of of Union veterans, you might make sure to mention in your speeches your opponent's very close relationship with Nathan Bedford Forrest, um, even if you needed to uh, embellish the tightness of that relationship. Forrest's business pursuits were not nearly as successful in the postbellum years that they had been earlier. In one after another pursuit, he ran into setbacks. In one of the first ones, he partnered with a couple other Memphis businessmen and put together a venture contracted to pave the streets of the city. They got the contract, but the city had to finance the project using municipal bonds, which Forrest accepted as payment. But the city's financial situation was not good, So there wasn't much of a market for the bonds. Uh, Most of them sold at a big loss. He also got involved in railroads, acquiring an ownership interest in the Selma, Memphis, and Marion line. Forrest's role was mostly geared toward marketing and trying to drum up investors. For a while, that went pretty well. Uh, He was always a good organizer and recruiter, which helped the company um, bring in experienced engineers. Railroad labor, though, like labor on the plantations, was in short supply. Former soldiers would have seemed to be a good place to look, but Forrest didn't think Southerners would be willing to do it. So he lobbied for immigration from Africa and China to meet the South's uh, labor needs. He said that his railroad had uh, jobs for a thousand new immigrants, and he was prepared to personally contribute to funding overseas recruiting efforts. Now, this is a, a different era we're talking about. The U.S. immigration system was a lot different then than it is today. But I still think it's noteworthy that Forrest was arguing for more immigrants on the ground that uh, laborers were needed to do the jobs that Americans wouldn't do. Of course, Chinese laborers would ultimately play a significant role in building railroads out west, but Forrest's railroad career hit a roadblock before he could get very far along into those plans. An economic panic hit the country in 1873, and as a result, northern investors were much harder to come by. Forrest traveled to New York to pitch the line to financiers, but most of the money men were trying to stay liquid to weather the panic, so they were no longer interested in risky but potentially lucrative investments in Southern railroads. Forrest resigned his position as an officer of the railroad line the following year, as other owners started to suspect that as much weight as the Forrest name carried in the South, Northern businessmen were somewhat reluctant to get involved with a venture that was attached to the name Nathan Bedford Forrest. He retained his ownership stake in the company, but his involvement was going to be a lot more hands-off from that point forward. Forrest also tried his hand at the insurance industry, again aided by his wartime reputation as he traveled the South in search of business. However, there's some question as to just how serious Forrest actually was about selling insurance. During his travels, he frequently attended reunions of Confederate veterans, 
giving speeches that helped set in motion what would become the lost cause. There's also some speculation that insurance was at least in part an excuse to move from town to town organizing KKK chapters and attending meetings. In 1875, uh, Forrest found a little more commercial success once again in the plantation business. Um, This time he had a, a plan to overcome the chronic labor shortages. He leased a plantation near Memphis and set up a deal with the local government under which penitentiary inmates would be sent to work on the plantation. Forrest arranged for room and board and closely supervised the operation, running a tight ship and keeping his new workforce on task. The program, uh, by all accounts, worked pretty well. A couple newspaper reporters who visited the plantation wrote glowingly about how smoothly the operation was running. During his last years, Forrest found religion, which Mary Ann very much appreciated. More than one acquaintance reported on how Forrest offered quite a few apologies for earlier conduct that had involved his violent temper. In 1877, Forrest got sick with a digestive ailment, and his condition quickly deteriorated. He was pale, lost lots of weight, and found himself unable to stay out of bed for long. He moved into his brother's house in Memphis, where he could be comfortable. Within a couple days of his death, and likely knowing he wouldn't have much longer, he wrote to an associate, quote, My life has been a battle from the start. My fight to achieve a livelihood for those dependent on me in my younger days— and independence for myself when I grew up to manhood, as well as the terrible turmoil of the Civil War. I have seen too much violence. And then he died, somewhat abruptly, on October 29th, calling for his wife with his last words. Forrest's funeral was held in Memphis shortly after, uh, with over 20,000 attendees. Jefferson Davis was one of the pallbearers. A Cincinnati journalist published an obituary, which I think does a great job of capturing the character of Nathan Bedford Forrest, quote, Old citizens of Memphis mildly described him to me as a terror, one of the most arbitrary and determined men that it is possible to conceive of as holding a high position in a civilized community. Rough, rugged, desperate, uncultured. His character fitted him rather for the life of the borderer than the planter. He seemed by nature a typical pioneer, one of those fierce and terrible men who form in themselves a kind of protecting fringe to the borders of civilization, end quote. The eulogist, who wrote under the pseudonym Ozzius Midwinter, um, then noted that Forrest's, quote, ferocity and reckless temper were not particularly endearing attributes, but became, quote, fine qualities in a soldier. Uh, Shelby Foote, in the Ken Burns Civil War series, famously referred to Forrest as one of the two genuine geniuses revealed uh, by the American Civil War, the other being President Lincoln. Foote also said of Forrest, quote, he was certainly not the villain they perceive him to be, end quote. Forrest was buried in a Memphis cemetery, though his and Mary Ann's remains were later moved to a park in Memphis, which was christened Forrest Park, in his honor. The city also erected a Nathan Bedford Forrest statue in the park. Unsurprisingly, the city of Memphis opted in 2013 to rename Forest Park. It's now known as Health Sciences Park. In my opinion, that is a lousy name, and they should pick a better one, ideally not involving any kind of corporate sponsorships. Um, I would humbly recommend Rick Flair Park in honor of another Memphis resident of historical significance. He was known as Nature Boy, after all. 
And for any listeners insufficiently versed in American um, high culture, to understand that last reference, Ric Flair is a professional wrestler, or he was. I think he's still around, but I kind of doubt he's still performing since he'd have to be in his 70s by now. This has been the fourth and final installment in our series on Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, This particular episode was a long time in the making, so I hope you enjoyed it. You might have noticed that we skipped the intro this time. My thinking is that that's often just a waste of time anyway, so unless I have something uh, important to say, that might be the new normal from here on out. Big thanks for all the kind and encouraging listener emails. I really appreciate everyone who takes the time to listen to the show, and I hope you all enjoyed the series on Nathan Bedford Forrest. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.